Greetings, you're listening to the Cantus Firmus podcast. I'm Cody, and I'm here with my friend Jackson, who hasn't been on in a while. How you doing, Jackson? Hey, doing all right, Cody. What you been up to lately, yeah. Jackson? Um, well, I didn't even get a chance to ask you how you're doing. How you doing? I'm doing pretty well. It's good to have you here. Good, good. It's, it's good, good, to, good to be here. So you're still doing the chocolate book? I still am. Yeah, and y'all can find that at chocolatebook.net. Basically, what I do is every weekday, every single weekday, I... Eat some chocolate, read the Bible, and I blog about it. So if you want to uh, tune in to somebody aggressively having a quiet time, uh, that's where you can read it. And it's great. It's actually they're, they're they're fairly short entries, and they're always really interesting and thoughtful. And I like that you sort of grapple with the text, and sometimes you're not always entirely sure where to go with it, and you express that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like reading the Bible is a finding out and learning process, and I try to reflect that. And in the most recent entry. I had a Harry Potter reference, a Strong Bad reference, and a Monty Python reference. Yeah, so if you're a nerd in other ways, and also a nerd who likes the Bible, then you would like this podcast. You'd like this uh, blog. Yeah. Maybe it should be a podcast. I think maybe it should be a podcast. Maybe it should be. I've encouraged you to do that on Patreon to do the uh, to make it into a, an audio form as well. Yeah. I think it'd be good. I'd listen to that. Chocolate podcast. Chocolate, chocolate, chocolate sounds... Um, we're, we're, we'll workshop the title. <laughs> the Chalk Cast. That sounds like chalk. Yeah. So that's not going to work. Well, anyway... Th- th- I'd eat, like, Neko <laughs> or something. Well, and speaking of Patreon, I, I've got one as well that I'm uh, trying to uh, promote here. And I wanted to thank um, two folks who are um, supporting me at a, at a higher tier level right now. Um, that would be Kelly Smith and Peter Mangle. And I really appreciate them. There's also a Patreon-only podcast that you guys could listen to. Uh, they put out about every couple weeks. Um, and uh, it's been pretty cool. We've been doing some stuff with like the early church writings, and it's been pretty cool, pretty fun. So this time, though, uh, for this podcast, I wanted to talk about Pentecost, which we um, a lot of churches actually celebrate Pentecost still, uh, and that was actually fairly recent. Uh, it kind of got me thinking about a, a podcast I had done last year on the feasts, like the Jewish feasts in general. Uh, I think I did it around April 20th. Um, last year. And so I did talk about Pentecost a little bit. I talked about um, uh, how it was uh, celebrated in the Old Testament. And I also talked a little bit about Exodus 19 and 20, because it used some language and symbols that that Acts chapter 2 seemed to pick up on, particularly like with contrasting the writing of God's law and tablets of stone with his writing on our hearts, which is like what Jeremiah wrote about in uh, Jeremiah 31. So uh, this time, what I really wanted to focus on was this other background information uh, related to the Tower of Babel, or Babel, depending on how you want to pronounce that. And and I do talk a little bit about this in a book I wrote called A Second Adam, and also in a book I'm writing right now, and some of the notes I've got here are from, from, those, uh, from those books. Which book is that? Well, I'm still figuring out the title. It's, it's about the relationship between um, political and demonic power, as expressed in Scripture, and then kind of a, so how do we approach politics as Christians now with this in mind. Um, the title that I kind of was using as a placeholder is Fight the Powers, because mm-hmm. it's a, sort of a public enemy reference, and I <laughs> did a podcast <laughs> on a similar theme where I did call it that, but I'm still thinking about other ideas um, for it, and uh, anybody wants to suggest one, I'd love to <laughs> love to get some suggestions. I was thinking... Uh, one idea that I had was Satan for president, which I thought would be, mm-hmm. <laughs> but maybe it would send the wrong message. Like yeah. for example, that I, that I wanted Satan to be president, which I don't. So. Yeah, you'd, you'd get some 
I'm sure you'd get some very angry responses and some very the like readers who would be disappointed. Sure. Well, but the, the trouble is, how do you find a, uh, a title for something that is provocative enough to get people interested, but that also you don't feel like is being so sensationalistic that you're not really making the point you want to make? Mm-hmm. And that's always the trouble I have. I come up with titles that are very uh, descriptive. Like, hey, this is what it is, guys. Yeah. And um, but uh, but maybe not necessarily as uh, provocative. And maybe I need to work on my salesmanship a little bit more. Yeah. So maybe Saint for President goes too far. But, uh, but maybe something in that vein. But Fight the Powers is what I'm calling it right Satan now. Satan for Governor. Satan for Governor. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a little less, less ambitious. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, um, so yeah, so th- this whole thing about uh, Babel kind of as the background for Pentecost is, is kind of what, what's going on here. And so as a, uh, as a kind of reminder for, for folks who maybe are, for whatever reason, maybe forgotten the story or haven't heard the story, um, Acts chapter 2 this is in the New Testament. This is after Jesus has resurrected and ascended, and he tells his followers to wait for something to happen, to stay in Jerusalem for this event. And this event that, that they're waiting for takes place on Pentecost. And there's these, um, they see these sort of tongues of fire that come down from the sky and, and settle on them, and then they're able to speak these other languages so that those who are visiting Jerusalem for the, at the temple from all these other places, Jews from all over the world, at the world at the time, come to visit Jerusalem for Pentecost or harvest or Shavuot if you want to use the Hebrew and they hear them proclaiming the gospel in their own language and so that this and then from there they you know like 5,000 people I believe are saved um, from this proclamation and they're you know these Jews from all over so that that's kind of what's what's happening there now there's all this background that's happening that you could miss and I talked a little bit if you want to go back to that April 20th 2017 podcast I did um, there's that background with Exodus 19 and 20 and the giving of the law that I think could be helpful. But here I want to talk about something that happens in Genesis chapter 11 that I think provides a pretty strong uh, background here for uh, as a counterpoint. And in Genesis chapter, chap, Genesis chapter 11, we have this situation where man is seeking to exercise dominion over the world by building a tower which reaches the heaven so that they may, quote, make a name for themselves. So... God doesn't like this idea. <laughs> um, he expresses concern over what mankind might be capable of if they were unified under one political authority. What exactly does he say? Do you remember? Because that's interesting. Yeah, so so God here says, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and they are confused their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. So it's, it's kind of like he's saying, oh no, my creation is about to be omnipotent. <laughs> well, sort of, and there's a similar thing in Genesis chapter 3, where where Adam and Eve, you know, fall into sin, and then he expresses concern over what happens if he lets them continue to eat from the tree of life, which will make them, you know... Yeah. basically make them immortal you know as, as long as they're doing it it's like life is going to be bad forever yeah and so so you know god's concern is you know we can't have humans in their current state you know consolidating power in this way living forever you know we have to put limits on what mankind can accomplish because if we don't they will destroy everything <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's it's kind of like you know whenever whenever i'm presented with the uh the the question, you know, that sort of poses the paradox, 
can God create a rock so heavy he can't lift it? Sort of the conclusion that I've come to is, well, yes, he can, because he's omnipotent. He can do anything. That's an anything, so he can do it. But he doesn't do it, because, my lord, that would be a mess. Fair enough. <laughs> so, so, um, so, yeah, so um, th- th- this whole thing about him splitting, splitting the groups up, that tended to be interpreted um, in light of the previous chapter in Genesis, chapter uh, 10, where it talks about the table of nations, the 70 nations. And so when you read um, like intertestamental literature, and there's also maybe a couple references in the New Testament, at least one comes to mind. I think Luke chapter 10, uh, there's an allusion to it. Um, there's this idea of 70 nations that God sort of separates humanity into. And so the way that a lot of Jews thought of it was that, uh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going to skip ahead to Deuteronomy 32. And this is kind of an, an under... Um, you know, used, underutilized passage in scripture that I think is pretty significant. And I would actually say it was very significant for the way intertestamental Jews and, uh, you know, Jews during the New Testament period, as well as Christians and, and early Christians as well, they thought this was a pretty significant chapter, but we, we tend to leave it out. So what goes down in Deuteronomy 32? Well, it's 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 a, it's the speech that Moses has, but the, the most relevant part here is in chap, uh, chapter 32, verse 8. And it says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, and this seems to be referring back to Babel, when he divided mankind, Mm -hmm. he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. So Deuteronomy 32, 8 is saying, God has given all of these nations into the hands of these sons of God. But Israel is God's special portion. They don't have this, you know, other being in charge of them. So mm-hmm. Now, there's a textual variant here, so I'll mention it. Um, it the ESV actually follows the translation I use there. Uh, a lot of other modern translations do as well. In, the, in, in Deuteronomy 32, the Greek translation reads the um, angelon uh, theu, the angels of God. Mm-hmm. Or, so... The Masoretic text and many other uh, older translations uh, read uh, B'nai Yisrael, uh, the sons of Israel. So if you pick this up in King James, it'll say that God divided uh, the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel, hmm. which is kind of interesting. However, this is kind of important to note, um, the number is actually the same. <laughs> because if you look at Exodus uh, chapter 1, verse 5, it gives the number of the children of Israel as 70. Mm-hmm. So it could be that as the Masoretic text was being transmitted, they there was a sense of embarrassment about this reading, according to the sons of God. Mm-hmm. And so they maybe obscured the text a little bit and said, according to the number of the sons of Israel. But still we're pointing back to the same idea, the same number, 70. Mm-hmm. And so, the number happens to be the same. Number happens to be the same. Now, what's kind it's of it's a little, a little kind of transitive property thing going on. Huh? I think possibly, yeah. And so, the Masoretic reading, with, with the our Hebrew uh, the reading that we have uh, in the what's called the Masoretic tradition, which is where most of our Hebrew manuscripts come come from, it's sort of medieval um, uh, transmission. You know, it just says the the sons of Israel, but there's a Palestinian targum. What would be the date for that? Um, early medieval, I'd think. Um, so Targum is a translation of the Old Testament into Aramaic. 
but mm-hmm. it's a very loose translation, so they'll like put little commentary here and there. And so I like how this is interesting, the way that it reads. It says, He cast the lot among the seventy angels, the princes of the nations, with whom is the revelation to oversee the city. Even at that time he established the limits of the nations according to the sum of the number of the seventy souls of Israel who went down into Egypt. So, so this is kind of a guy paraphrasing. Yeah, so he brings in the seventy angels and the seventy souls of Israel, which suggests that he's aware of maybe two different traditions here mm-hmm. in Deuteronomy thirty-two eight. Yeah. Now there's there's a version that says uh, that says the number of the sons of God. Yeah. So sons of God is in the Dead Sea Scroll. So it's it's a very early reading. Okay. So that's um, is that the same uh, phrase sons of God as we show up. Uh, for the, shall we say, daddies of the Nephilim? So yeah, the, the term sons of God um, in Old Testament usage does seem to refer to angels. So yeah, Genesis 6-2, sons of Nephilim would be an example. Or the, mm-hmm. the Nephilim is the sons of God. Uh, Psalm 82-6, Job 38-7, Job 1-6 seems to use similar language. You might say we're talking about mm-hmm. second-order spiritual beings. Yeah, so the idea of the sons of God are, and, and there's different different ideas about how the angels should be separated into hierarchies, but um, this gets brought up in with like a lot of the divine counsel stuff. So there's this idea you find it in like Psalm 82, for example, that God has these beings that he refers to as the sons of God. It's like a heavenly scene, seemingly, where he is criticizing them for their mistreatment of the nations. Mm-hmm. They're, 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 they have they have mishandled their their responsibilities over the nations. Now, um, a lot of commentators have said, "Well, these are just you know human kings," but you know God uses the sons of God language because He's trying to say that you know they're like sort of ruling in His place in a way, and He's elevating them. Uh, but then He actually says, "You you even though you are sons of God, you will die like men and like any king." Mm. So. He's saying that they're not kings. He's comparing them to the deaths of human. He's saying you'll die just like human kings die. Yeah. So there's a judgment that's going to come to these sons of God because they've mishandled their responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. And it's it's like that's kind of a surprise. Like, oh, hey, guess what? You're going to die like human kings. <laughs> yes. And they're like, what? <laughs> exactly. So yeah. So the sons of God language does, I think, refer to angels. And if when you take into account the early Dead Sea Scroll reading, the Septuagint reading, the later Masoretic reading may disagree with that, but it first of all, it does so in a way that still possibly hints at that other reading. Also, I think it's the most likely, uh, the, the Sons of God reading is more likely just because it's more likely that they would have changed that reading to Sons of Israel because of embarrassment, because they were trying to get away from this notion that, that what they might perceive as like, well, this sort of sounds like polytheism. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to get away from that. In fact, in the Septuagint, where it says angels of God, they would change Elohim when it was referencing, um, uh, you know, the angels to just Angeloi. Yeah. So there was a sort of way of trying to sort of tone down some of the language you found in the Old Testament um, to try to, I guess they, their concern was that maybe this doesn't teach monotheism as strictly as we want it to. It still does teach monotheism. There's still one supreme God. But he refers to his, you know, this, the angels, really some of them, as the sons of God. Because mm-hmm. you need a word to refer to these spiritual beings of both the first order God and second order the other stuff. Yeah. So, and, and there's really nothing, I think, that's that contradicts the way Christians have thought about monotheism. But, you know, it's, yeah. I think it, it troubles people maybe who, um, uh, 
who aren't nuanced enough to appreciate some of these distinctions. They're like, yeah. well, that just doesn't sound right. I don't like the way that sounds. So yeah. let's... It's like you've still only got one eternal, self-existent being. Yeah. So it seems to me that sons of God is, is the most plausible reading. Angels of God and sons of Israel, I think, both diverge from that in ways that you would expect. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah. So are we ready to bring this in to shed some light on Pentecost, or is there still some, <laughs> some walking to go? Um... So we're we're pretty much there. Um, I want to mention really quickly. So um, uh, just kind of to, to, to maybe to summarize here, we have God giving up the nations to these other beings, angelic beings. Mm-hmm. But Israel is his special people, and one of the things that makes Israel a special people is that they have the law. So that's one of the things that separates Israel from everybody else. Um, I'll, I'll add real quickly uh, an old Old Testament or. Um, a biblical scholar, uh, D.S. Russell, uh, in his book, The Method and Message of Jewish Apocalyptic, he would say that this idea of the guardian angels, as they might be called, the guardian angels over the nations or the patron angels over the nations, uh, he would say that it definitely goes back to Deuteronomy 32.8. He says the passage, quote, describes the division of the nations of mankind and the choosing of Israel to be God's own people. All the nations of the earth are given over into the control of angelic powers, but Israel is reserved for Yahweh alone, end quote. So in Babel, humanity finds itself separated from each other and under the authority of negative spiritual powers on the basis of their languages being divided from each other. So in Babel, humans are are cursed by a confusion of languages which divides them into various nations. But at Pentecost, and then even more so throughout the book of Acts, as this goes not just to Jews in different nations, but also to Gentiles, humans are blessed by being given the ability to cross language and even ethnic barriers to create one new nation in Christ. So, in some, Pentecost mirrors Babel's events and language to communicate that it's been reversed. And so then the question would be, what are the effects of this reversal? Old Testament scholar uh, Dr. Michael Heiser would say, uh, quote, As Jews gathered in Jerusalem for the celebration, heard and embraced the news of Jesus and his resurrection, Jews who embraced Jesus as Messiah would carry that message back to their home countries, the nations. Babel's disinheritance was going to be rectified by the message of Jesus, the second Yahweh incarnate, and his spirit. The nations would again be his, end quote. In addition, uh, Peter connects uh, Psalm 110 with the rule of Christ, arguing on the basis of it that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And he's quoting a psalm that highlights the future rule of Messiah over the whole world, which is Psalm 110. You know, the Lord sits, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Um, uh, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, a rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Peter sees what's happening at Pentecost as sort of pointing forward to this psalm, that Christ is going to rule over the nations. In order to do that, he has to judge the nations, dethrone the kings, and take them back from the powers the angelic powers that are over them that have failed in their duties. Okay. Hmm. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. It's it's like the, uh, you know, in order to, um, like he's, uh, gosh, I, I, <laughs> I don't want to go to the, the sort of fuming dad uh, saying, I brought you into this world, I can take you out of it. But that's where my mind goes. But it's 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 kind of like, uh, yeah, he's he's 
um, granted them power, they've abused it, so he's going to take it back. He hasn't done that yet, but you know, he's said he's going. Sure. Well, Pentecost, and it, it, there's kind of a now and not yet quality of this, right? Because at Pentecost, he does do it in a sense. You know, the the, the, the nations have not yet become Christ's. You know, in the way that we look forward to in the second coming. But he has broken down these dividing walls of nations. He did it at Pentecost by breaking down the division between of languages. And mm-hmm. as you read through an Acts, he also does this by bringing Gentiles into the fold of Israel. Yeah. So. It's kind of like, you know, erasing those those boundaries, the, the 70, you know, mm-hmm. number of the sons of Israel, number of the sons of God, angels of God, however you want to put it. Yeah, it's, it's like that, that, you know... Scrub those out language-wise. Yeah. Well, and, and also, so this is kind of fun. So that the 70, there's in the Septuagint, that, that number is actually 72. Now, if you go to, I think it's... Not 70 also. 70 yeah, digit. 70, yes, yeah, the number 72. There's 72 nations. So then when you get to, I think it's Luke chapter 10, where Jesus is sending out the disciples in Paris. Mm-hmm. Does he send out, how many of them does he send out? Is it 70 or is it 72? It's 72 because they're reading the Septuagint, but there's textual variants that say 70. Oh, uh-huh. So which one was it? <laughs> well, probably 72, because they're reading this up two again. But what's happening is that there are some scribes who are reading this, and they're thinking of the number 70, mm. because they're familiar with the other tradition. So they're like, let's fix this. Yeah, we'll make it 70. And so what they're seeing, though, is this number is important. Jesus is sending out his disciples with this message to the world. Mm-hmm. And it's supposed to be breaking down you know, these boundaries and bringing the nations back in. So... Um, Moving just, I want to move a little bit past Acts 2 because I think this is kind of important for emphasizing what's happening here. Um, you know, later, as the apostles are becoming convicted, the gospel message has also broken down boundaries between Jew and Gentile. We see Paul calling Gentiles to become part of God's kingdom and thus delivering them from the, uh, the relative ignorance of, that they had of God, which the demons over the nations kept them in. So in a speech to the Athenians on Mars Hill, Paul gives a nod to the events of Babel, and perhaps also implicitly to Deuteronomy 32, when he says that God made one humanity, which was then divided into distinct nations. Though these nations did not have the direct knowledge of God afforded Israel, they nevertheless had a sense of the the divine uh, whom they could strive to know more deeply. Paul says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. That's Acts seventeen twenty six through 29. Yeah, it's, it's kind of the idea that these, you know, that the geographic... Uh, the, the the boundaries, the political boundaries, the, you know, nation X stops here and nation Y starts here that we put on the map that, you know, even though we're the ones putting those on the map, like, that's part of God's plan. He has, he has in a sense, appointed these boundaries through our appointing. And, like, even if what goes down within them isn't 100%, you know, following his law, that, that he's in some sense, working within that and working it toward this other this other goal. Yeah, so, so, so there's, there's kind of two things at play here, God's grace and God's sovereignty. That, that through his grace, there's still something that's pointing toward him. And, and even as, as you look at some of these pagan religions, there are, there are things that are there that do point to God. 
mm-hmm. you know, very imperfectly. But but Paul is quoting there here, are similarities. There yeah. are points of confluence, points of yeah. concord. And Paul is quoting pagan poets to say, "You guys have a sense of this already." It may, I mean, a sensus divinitatis, you might call it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, um, you know, totally explicit or clear, but it's there. And so, you know, the role of God's sovereignty here, I think, becomes a question because, you know, you read like um, uh, Daniel 10. And in Daniel 10, you have this vision that, uh, you know, Daniel has where an angel comes to see him. And it's based on a prayer that he had prayed, I think, two weeks before. And the angel says, I'm sorry, I'm late. I was held up. <laughs> I was held up. I was trying to get here, and but I, I was in a battle with the prince of Persia. Huh. And he says, well, you know, who's the prince of Persia? He says, well, well, Michael came and helped me. <laughs> Michael, who is the prince of your people. So Michael has this sort of, you know... Um, mm-hmm. A suggestion that the prince of Persia isn't some human person... Or like a dude with a time dagger or something. Yes, he's an yes, exactly. <laughs> he, the prince of Persia is an angel. Mm-hmm. An angelic power over Persia. And he says, and once the prince of Persia is gone, the prince of Greece will come. Which we know historically, once the, prince, the Persian Empire fell, Greece came. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so basically what, what you have here is you have these... The man behind the man. The throne behind the throne. Yeah. And these, machina- these these all these machinations are happening behind the scenes as well, right? Mm-hmm. So where is God in this? So we know that it happens in a political well, there's sense. there's a throne behind the throne behind the throne. Exactly. So God has to at least allow this this stuff to happen. But even while he's allowing it, his grace is working through the situation. And ultimately, this is all moving towards something, which is the, the breaking down of these dividing walls. And so that nation and language uh, no longer is significant if you're in the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because their knowledge was limited, the Gentiles often failed spectacularly to understand God. But um, in his epistle to the Ephesians, Paul writes of the mystery revealed in his time that, quote, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's Ephesians 3, 6. That Gentiles are now united to Jews through Christ means that they were once, quote, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, end quote. Ephesians 2.12. Why were they strangers to the covenants of promise? Because, Deuteronomy 32.8, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, he divided mankind according to the number of the sons of God, but made Israel his allotted heritage. Mm-hmm. So the division was undone when, Ephesians 1.20-21, uh, when God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, end quote. As you're reading what Paul is saying in Ephesians, the thing that breaks down this dividing wall, which includes the, the law, because the law is what makes Israel God's heritage, is Jesus coming uh, and basically defeating the powers. And the, the powers is this sort of a special word to use, uh, uh, powers and authorities, uh, arche and exousia uh, in Greek. And it's, uh, it's this, these two sort of special words that sometimes refer to political powers and sometimes refer to demons. And it's not always clear which one Paul is using them to refer to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in any case, Paul, or J- Jesus defeats both. Um, mm. Uh, at the very least, uh, he defeats both at the end, end, end of days, you know, in 1 Corinthians 15, that all, all power and authority will be placed under his feet. But um, at the very least, defeats the spiritual powers now, and I think, in a sense, he defeats the political powers as well. Hmm. Well, this, uh, let's, let's, I guess, dig a little into this idea that the law is 
one of the things that sets Israel apart from the other nations, mm-hmm. uh, so the law functions as a boundary in some sense. You know, when when Jesus is erasing these boundaries between nations, um, he's not doing it by abolishing the law as such. He's uh, Would it be accurate to say that he's doing it by bringing the law into the other nations, you know, kind of writing it on their hearts, as it were? In some sense, yes. In some sense, no. So if you read the epistle to the Hebrews, whoever is writing that, (laughs) um, says that when you undo a part of the law, especially something that actually makes the law work, you've undone the entire law. And so by saying that we now have a new high priest, that the old one isn't functioning anymore, a new sacrificial system, the old one isn't functioning anymore, the actual, the whole law is essentially undone. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that the law did not um, give us a sense of God's um, character, that it has no use for us, that we can't learn anything about it, that it shouldn't in some way inform our behavior, but it does mean that the law as a whole has been undone. So circumcision is not required. Uh, animal sacrifice is not required. We no longer have to go to see a priest to have our sins atoned for because Christ has replaced that. And so if one part of the law is undone, especially the part that actually makes it all work, which is the sacrificial system, mm-hmm. then it's all undone. Okay, so it's... it's. Would it be accurate to to go and say that that's... Um, that the, the law, the Torah, the thing that Israel has that is an important part of what makes it Israel, that that, is, that, that law is a shadow of, I guess you might talk, call it, what God actually wants. Yeah, I think it points forward, but it's incomplete. Christ is, you know, it... it, it, it um, it's like two-dimensional compared yeah. to the three-dimensional yeah. thing casting the shadow. Paul uses the uh, the language of like a like a school teacher on those. You know, when you're mm-hmm. a child, you need these things sometimes to point to get you ready for adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I think about that a lot when, when I talk with um, Muslims in particular because Islam is, is predicated on, you know, every single detail of your life being regulated. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, I, I sort of see it in that way that, you know, um, it's almost like when I tell my child, you know, uh, you know, it's it's bedtime, you have to go to sleep at 7.30. Yeah, here's the bell, pray now. Direct analog to school, here's the bell, change classes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's important if you're trying to teach a kid principles. But does that mean that my, my daughter should always go to bed at 7.30, no matter how old she is, and no matter, <laughs> you know what I mean? No, it doesn't. But but that that points forward to something else that is maybe more important. It's kind of like training wheels. Yeah, exactly. Got so, it. So now, what, what what's happening here then at, at Pentecost is not, um, you know, it's not about me being given some private gift of the you know ecstatic 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 utterances. Uh, it's not about you know angelic tongues or whatever. It's about the gospel tearing down barriers of language and ethnicity and nation, which demons and despots uh, cope to keep erecting. So I think this is important for us as Christians because sometimes we get very focused on some of these issues like uh, ethnicity and race and language and, you know, country and America first. And, and immigration. Yeah. If you're in here, you need to, if you're in this country, you need to speak English, that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, but ultimately what, what the gospel is about is that those barriers aren't meaningful, that actually they have been undone, that they are in a sense, the work of demons. (laughs) Um, So, you know, we who are living in the kingdom of God are living in a a very different kind of order. 
And so we, we aren't supposed to be sort of serving these... Well, we're not supposed to be serving demons anymore, essentially. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we're, you know, you keep using the, the word undone, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I, I keep thinking that after Pentecost, we still have language, mm-hmm. and, like, um, you know, I, I, I'll just throw the rhetorical question out to you and to all the people listening to your podcast here, mm-hmm. like... How often have you heard someone use the gift of tongues to communicate across a language barrier? I, I, I've, I've heard people say that they've seen it done, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not something I've seen myself. And people, maybe the people who I talk to are lying, I guess. But, but I, yeah. <laughs> I've heard people say that it's something they've seen done. Um, I don't know. I mean, some people talk about the um, gifts being brought in where a need is. Mm-hmm. You know, that these gifts, not necessarily that they cease to exist uh, after the time of the apostles, but that maybe they are less needful in our particular time and culture. Yeah. But you also do hear of um, a large number of Muslims coming to Christ because of a dream that they have, a vision they have, yeah. something sort of supernatural that occurs. And perhaps those those sort of supernatural instances take place more where they're necessary. Yeah, that experience does seem to be sort of a, a common thread, you know, something that is is happening over in those countries on a, you know, reasonably large scale. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've, I've heard that too. Yeah. Well, and, and even, and even in, in, um, even in our culture, so um, uh, Nabil Qureshi, who is a, um, uh, recently passed away, but he was a, a Muslim who converted to Christianity on the basis of dreams that he had. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he, of course, heard about Christianity first, but he had these really kind of uh, bizarre dreams he didn't really know how to interpret. And he called his grandmother, and in their culture, they had this whole thing about how dreams would be interpreted. And when she started telling him what the symbols in the dream meant, according to their you know cultural perspective or whatever, he realized that <laughs> that they were pointing him toward Christ. That those details in particular were were, were point toward Christ. Yeah, that Jesus was talking to him in a language he understood, or that his culture understood the language of dreams. Yeah. And so what, what and, and that's another way of just saying that the gospel is about breaking down these barriers yeah. so that, that that God can actually make one people. Yeah. So characterizing Pentecost as having broken down those barriers doesn't seem entirely accurate to me. I think it might be more accurate to say that it initiated a process of breaking down those barriers in a very new way. Yeah, I mean another way like what we talked about earlier, the now and not yet. Quality. Yeah, now and not yet. Yeah, so there's something that still is not fully accomplished until Christ comes back. And so I'm not saying that we should overthrow the government and create a one-world Christian government, <laughs> right? So what I am saying is that Christ will do that, <laughs> but that we now uh, should be living in light of this spiritual kingdom. So, you know, when, when uh, Jesus is talking to Pilate, and Pilate says, oh, if you're this king, how come you're here in front of me right now and I'm, I'm about to crucify you? And Jesus says... Well, my kingdom is not from this world. If it were, then my servants would fight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a different kind of kingdom. So, But we are supposed to live in that reality. So we as Christians ought to be living in light of Pentecost. Yeah, We ought to be living in light of this idea that the kingdom of God is already here, that those boundaries have already been broken down. So we should not be insisting on these boundaries of culture and nation and language in the same way that um, you know, our governments do. Yeah, you know what I mean. We we we're not we're not part of that system. Yeah, we should be. Um, well, I I suppose there's a lot of things we should be doing, and being. Yeah. Yeah. 
So anyway, that's my that's my that's my basic thing on Pentecost as far as like this whole issue is concerned. Some of the background information here, and I, I will expand on a lot of this stuff in the book if anybody wants to get a hold of it when it's when it's out. But um, so far, does that does that do those, do those connections make sense to you, Jackson? As I explain them, yeah, it does, and it it seems like this might be a good point for me to step back and take a a broad Babel to Pentecost view that has sort of been running around in my head as we started talking about this. Um, and that's that, you know, at Babel, uh, God in institutes these boundaries because of man's pride, his overambition, his desire to make a name for himself, this sort of bad thing he's doing. God brings in language. It's a divider. Okay? So, you know, communication barriers. Um, and then at Pentecost, like, God is um, breaking down these barriers. You know, the language is language barriers. You might say are a solution to the the problem in the heart of man. But you know what God is doing at Pentecost is sort of this this thing where He's eliminating the root problem in the heart of man. Yeah. You know, and here at Pentecost. He's doing it, he's communicating it, he's getting it through by removing the barriers that he placed there. Yeah. Which right. is wild. Yeah. It's pretty wild. Yeah, so so the, he deals with the problem by writing his law on the hearts of man. Yeah. Right? And so, and this isn't something, like I said, that, that, that you know, is a secular thing. We're, we're not saying, or at least I'm not saying, and I don't think scripture is saying, that we should build a one world society on the basis of all these boundaries being, being separated. Because that's Babel. Or Babel. Yeah. Right? What he is saying is that for those who are in Christ, who are part of his kingdom, whose law is written on their hearts, those divisions don't matter. Mm -hmm. They matter if you're, you know, living in this world as part of a kingdom, in a kingdom of this world. But if you're a part of the kingdom of God, those distinctions don't matter. Babel is probably a more Hebrew accurate way of pronouncing it, right? Yeah, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, and just so, you know, in the, in the same way, Septuagint, that's, that's Greek. Right. Yeah. Like I, I have a bad habit of saying Babel and Septuagint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard Septuagint too. But yeah, at least I was taught that it's a hard G. So Septuagint. Septuagint. Gint. It's kind of no. like a Augustine or Augustine. Yeah. Well, that's that's not so egregious as Septuagint. <laughs> you know. It's not so egregious. Egregious. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, I think we wrapped it up nicely, Jackson. Oh, yeah. Thank High you. fives, dude. Thanks for coming here with me because I think it made it more fun and it made me go in different directions than yeah. I should have gone to and probably wouldn't have. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's dope time. Dope. <laughs>